Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, welcome back. Eric and Matt here with LLP. We're finally getting back into doing some LLP podcasts. Wow, a little bit of a hiatus there. Yeah, man, we've been super busy. I'm I'm really excited to get back in here and, and talk about some really, really good topics. Yeah, man, we're going to get into it. Um, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, lots of things going on. Uh, we are going to be discussing deer hunting season 2021. Oh, yeah. And I did put a Twitter poll out to ask some questions, so we will be fielding a few questions on today's podcast. Also, if you're tuning in here on YouTube, uh, on Iraq Veteran 8888, uh, thank you for tuning back in. We're going to dive into some cool concepts, and we're going to talk about you know gear, tactics, ethics. Mm-hmm. We're going to really dive into the rabbit hole on deer hunting. Uh, I really enjoy hunting whitetail deer. I, I just love the concept of deer hunting, and we are going to really get into a lot of fun stuff today. Uh, this is an hour-long show, so buckle in, crack a beer, yep. and hang out, and uh, we're going to get rolling with it. All okay. Right. Uh, but before we get started, I would like to thank our friends at Sonoran Desert Institute for supporting LOP. Really great group of people. If you're interested in a career in gunsmithing, uh, you want to learn more about gunsmithing technology, reloading, and you're looking for a career in that field, they're definitely the go-to group of people to look into. Great distance learning programs, wonderful instructors, uh, tons of you know ways to pay for it, you know financial aid and things like that. So look into them, Sonoran Desert Institute, SDI. All right, we're going to get cracking in on this here. And um, so I guess before we get rolling too hard on the subject matter at hand, just yep. how's life in general? Let, let's kind of get caught up real quick. It's been, what, Man. about a month since Dude, we've recorded it's probably LLP? been like two months. Or th- it's, I mean, we've just been so busy, both you and I, uh, both just going gangbusters, like all kinds of things. You know, on the ballisticking side, we're getting in a whole bunch of new equipment, getting that installed. We did some upgrades, so we're going to be able to get those orders out faster. Um, and it just kind of refreshes the shop and, you know, gives us some new technology to work with there and doing a lot of traveling, um, just, you know, go, traveling with the family, vacations and stuff that you don't get to do for the entire year. And then you get a couple of couple of weeks here and there to go spend some time with the family. And guys, do not neglect your family. I know everybody wants to work and be successful, but take a couple of weeks out and, and, you know, refresh the batteries. Wise words, oh, yeah. for sure. You know, you, sometimes you, you don't want to get burned out. You know, sometimes you just have to step back from a situation, take a little bit of time and have a mental break, oh, a yeah. mental health break is what I like to call it, because it is really easy to get, you know, wrapped up in all the work that you're trying to do. And, you know, Chad and I have been filming like Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, tons of different videos that we're making on the channel. Uh, if you're tuning here on LLP and you don't know about the YouTube channel, I'm not sure why you wouldn't, but (laughs) I I guess because you probably follow us because of the channel, but uh, it's Iraq Veteran 8888 there on YouTube. Uh, You know, we got tons of videos and we've been filming like absolute madmen. And, uh, you know, we also have our guitar channel, Guitarsonal, shameless plug, if you will. And uh, we do equipment reviews, guitars, amps, and things like that. I swear we are going to get into deer hunting. But uh, in these podcasts, we do uh, go on some different tangents. I hope you'll uh, bear with us on that. But I took a break from that as well, uh, because you know sometimes you have to just take a step back from something. I haven't posted a uh, guitar signal video in three months, right? But because I wanted to sort of just step back and sort of reprogram a bit, and I don't even think I've touched a guitar in thirty, forty-five days, and that's okay. Sometimes it's all right to just take a step back. So good to hear. Glad glad the trip's yeah. going well. But I'm 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 really looking forward to deer season. Uh, this year, one of the places that we hunt is down at our friend Linton's place down outside of Colquitt uh, near Leary, Georgia. So don't it's uh, him, way down don't give in the Don't give them too boondocks. much info, man. You're going to give it away. That's right. Way down in South Georgia is <laughs> where we do our hunting and all. And uh, he's a real nice fellow. And, uh, you know, we do have the unique opportunity to get down there and really uh, do a good bit of work on the property. And, you know, we get in there and cut the lanes and we mm-hmm. plant the food plots 
and we set up stands and we check uh, the stands for wasp nests and critters. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> you don't want to get in that stand and then you're like staring at a a mean old hornet or wasp's nest and you're like, oh, it's only a matter of time before these things come out. That's right. Or you're in there with them and they're they're not bothering you and you go pow and you shoot a rifle and then they they lose their minds and start attacking you. I've had that happen. Uh, So we've definitely made a point to keep some wasp spray. That's right. In all the deer stands. So, um, you know, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. You know, rifle season just opened up last weekend Mm -hmm. and here in Georgia, uh, I know some of our listeners and viewers, you, you may not necessarily, um, you know, be in Georgia. And I know some of the states have different seasons for when the rifle seasons, you know, open for deer and everything like that. But here in Georgia, it was last weekend. Yep. And um, I'm, I'm always torn about it because, you know, the deer don't really start moving like crazy until it's good and cold. I'm yeah. talking nipply burr nipply cold i think we experienced that last year we got out there a little early we were a little overzealous and i don't want to say we wasted some time but i think we could have done a little bit more with the time there than sitting in a blind um i think our time would have probably been better served maybe doing some grounds maintenance or something like that versus kind of hunkering down and not really seeing anything that's right well i did get in the stand uh you know this last weekend i only saw one small doe um not really anything worth shooting The thing is, there's so much, especially if you hunt in South Georgia, you know that a lot of those farmers down there, they have peanut fields and cornfields, and they're still harvesting a lot of that stuff. So if they harvest a cornfield and you got volunteer corn laying all over the place and coming up, there's so much food for the animals to eat right now. Um, You know, there's just not a lot of competition for food. There's still acorns on the ground. There's still Mm -hmm. volunteer corn. There's still peanut shards and all kinds of stuff they can eat on. So... They're not really having to fight for food right now. There, there's an abundance of food and an abundance of that. So, you know, that makes it a little bit harder. You know, it makes the deer a little bit harder to predict. And plus the weather, I mean, opening season or opening day rifle season, I think it was 75 degrees during the day. Yeah, it was pretty warm. Yeah, Very even warm. in the morning, it was only like maybe 58, 60 degrees. That's still pretty hot. I think it just started dropping down to about the 40s, maybe two or three days ago. Um, But other than that, it's been relatively warm. Uh, I I just wanted to touch on how fortunate we are here in Georgia to have such a long deer season. I mean, I've I've been talking to a lot of guys in other parts of the U.S. And, you know, the seasons vary widely on how long they are, the types of weapons here in Georgia. Um, we can use bottleneck cartridges. So that's great. Uh, our season is very long compared to a lot of places. I mean, we're starting what October 16th and it runs through January 3rd. So you're talking almost three months worth of hunting bag limits, like 10 doe, two bucks. Um, I was talking to Tim, um, from military arms and he's over in Indiana and they get two weeks out of the year and it's straight wall cartridges only. And I mean, it just kind of limits you on it. If you don't have the time to get out and hunt within those two weeks, well, you're kind of at an impasse. You don't get that opportunity. You have to go out of state. And once you start going out of state, you're paying out of state licensing fees to hunt. It gets considerably more expensive than hunting in state. And, um, you know, we, I did, uh, extend the invite over to Tim, you know, I said, Hey, we have a very long deer hunting season. So anytime you want to come down, you know, come on down, we'll, we'll get you out there. And while Georgia isn't known for having the biggest bruisers, I think that, um, just getting out there and having that extended season, you get to see, you get a lot more opportunities, um, to get out there and get you some venison than you would in another part of this country. Yeah, you know, Georgia has some really, really big deer, for mm-hmm. sure. But Indiana, you get up in those cornfields oh, yeah, up there, man. and, and uh, man, it is absolutely insane how big the deer can get in some of these states. I mean, I know Tennessee, they grow some really big deer up in there, you mm-hmm. know. So it's it just depends on where you're at. I mean, there are areas in Georgia where there's some absolute bruisers, certainly, um, we can sort of segue that into land management and deer mm-hmm. management. Let's just sort of talk about that a little bit. Uh, we are going to field some questions from Twitter here in a little while. I'm letting some of those questions float in. Uh, I just now posted the tweet um, just a few minutes ago, so we'll let those questions start floating in a little bit. Uh, but we'll talk about management. So, 
you know, when you're talking about hunting on public land, you're kind of at the mercy mercy of everyone else around you, right? right. So public land, yeah, deer tend to be kind of small because typically uh, most of your hunters on public land are going to shoot whatever the heck they see. So, you know, all right, say that you let some (laughs) eight-pointer or ten-pointer walk because it's not a deer that's of a quality that you would shoot. Maybe it's not large enough. Maybe you've already shot a few 10-pointers and you want a nice big 12 or 14 or maybe a deer that has a larger spread if you're trophy hunting. If you let that deer walk in the hopes of, all right, well, maybe next year he'll be a bigger deer. No. He probably ain't going to live another year. Not at all. Because someone else is going to shoot him. So there tends to be that that you have to deal with a little bit too. But also your buck population is pretty closely tied to your doe population, right? So if a property has a lot of does on it, uh, you're also going to have a lot of bucks yeah. because those bucks are chasing does, right? Now, there is a little bit of a series of diminishing returns. You don't want to have too many doe on your property, but you want a healthy doe population for sure. So, you know, lots of farmers this time of year and uh, people that are managing their deer camps and stuff, you know, they'll start getting their food plots in, they'll plant winter rye, they'll plant, um, you know, all different types of clovers, winter peas, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, just to give the deer some forage and everything to ensure that they're good and healthy. Um, you know, we feed them corn. So we get a giant gondola of corn and we go through and we feed them tons of corn, as much corn as we can afford to feed them throughout the year. Um, and corn is rather expensive, especially right now. Um, and Georgia just recently changed the baiting laws to where you can bait pretty much all over the state of Georgia right now. So yeah. uh, the whole baiting thing that used to have zones and certain zones you couldn't bait in, uh, that's no longer an issue now. You can bait in the entire state of Georgia. And, you know, the ethics of baiting, some people go, well, why would you hunt over corn? Uh, is it is it not ethical to hunt deer over bait? Well, my answer to that is a little bit of a twofold sort of thing, right? Well, how many deer eat that corn? We're talking thousands of pounds of corn over the whole property throughout I, I the year. I think we went through like a whole couple pallets uh, last season. We did. It was like three tons, I yeah. believe. It, last, was t- it was literally Last tons. season, it was yeah. uh, like almost 6,000 pounds of corn we fed the deer on the mm-hmm. entire property. How many deer eat that corn that we don't see or shoot versus the ones we do? So... When someone thinks, oh, you're hunting over corn, well, yeah, you're hunting over corn, but that's where you're trying to train the deer to come into that area, right? Um, But you're also feeding the deer. How many deer do you not shoot versus what you do shoot that they're going to be fed and healthy? All right, so you've got the rut, and then the bucks and does are pairing up, and then the the does are, are carrying uh, babies, right, at some point, you know, after they nature takes its course, right? Well... In order for mama to have a healthy buck, right? We want to talk about raising bucks, yep. big, big deer. That's the, big manage, deer the management aspect. Management aspect, growing big deer, big racks. Nutrition for that buck starts in mama, right? So the better that that deer is eating, the you know, I've got nutritious food out there for him. We've got forage we've planted for him. Uh, we put protein out there for him, mineral blocks, salt blocks. There's plenty of water on the property. There's plenty of areas on the property that we don't mess with. Oh, there's tons so of the areas. So the deer have a, a nice sanctuary. They can, they know they can go there and not get pressured, right? So the lack of stress that is caused by that and all the abundance of food, mama carries a nice healthy buck, and that's how how it starts. Good genetics and and a good healthy deer starts inside of mama, right? That's right. So that's important. So yeah, you're going to shoot a few deer on the corn, of course. But you're also going to let numerous ones, probably 10 times or 20 times as many more, walk mm-hmm. uh, throughout the year. So I don't really think that hunting over bait is unethical at all. Um, it, it's just part of the process. It's a tactic. You know, some people get out there and spot and stalk and walk around, sneak around. You can certainly do that. I tend to be a stand hunter. Mm-hmm. But in my defense, it's also because we film a lot when we hunt. So when you're filming hunts, it's really hard to have a couple of cameramen being sneaky and staying still, and you're trying to play the wind, you're trying to be quiet, and you're trying to sneak up on an animal and shoot it. Come on. It's impossible with a cameraman. And a lot of it is regional. You will hardly ever, I mean, I've never even done a spot and stock in the Southeast. I mean, it's just, it's a regional thing. It's not, the, the deer here are very skittish, unless you're on a, uh, 
high, super high fence area where they're kind of not skittish and you're able to find them. But we'll talk about that in a little bit later. But spot and stock hunting, you usually get that out in the Midwest and where there are plains, you have very good visibility, um, long lines here in the Southeast. It's very, very heavily wooded. Very, I mean, you have a lot of different terrain changes and you really, your only choice is to either do a tree stand or a ground blind. And as far as, I guess, I would say baiting, the when you put the corn out, like Eric said, you're kind of training those deer to come in and eat, but it's still a tactic. Those big 12-point bucks didn't live that long by just going out and nomming on some corn whenever you throw it out. It's still a cat and mouse game. You still have to be there at the right time. You have to choose the right area of that land. You have to play the wind. People have this misconception that you throw corn out on the ground and it's some magic powder and all the deer just come clamoring towards this this corn that's on the ground. Or you go get some, like, what, an acorn crush or apple crush and these guys are going to come running from miles away to to get this corn. Yeah, it's it's a it's a dual prong type of thing. I mean, obviously the corn is going to bring the deer in and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um but you're right. The big mature bucks, you're going to have to employ a little bit more uh smart tactics to get those guys to rattle back, you know, you antlers, have to, you have to yeah. rattle them in. You've got doe urine and other scents and things. Um, and also, it's about understanding your doe population and what they're doing. I mean, a lot of bucks that I've shot that are decent-sized bucks, it's always been one of those deals where I'm really observing those doe and really watching what they're doing. And a lot of people tend to go, oh, a deer, and they get excited, and a mm-hmm. deer walks out, and they shoot the first thing they see. But after I started really just waiting and not shooting the first thing you see, it doesn't matter if there's 30 doe in the field. Wait. And mm-hmm. watch them. Observe them. Once you begin to understand animal behavior, and more importantly in this situation, deer behavior, you really do start to understand how they act and what they do and, and what their body language is and, and you know, the different signs that, that, that they'll give you as to what's going on. And, you know, you'll learn to know when a doe's being chased. You can totally tell, you know, yep. she'll look back yeah, behind her. Yeah, looking behind her. Yeah. yeah. So you see that going on, you kind of start going, okay, I'm going to sort of plan. I'm going to wait and we're going to see what comes out. Right. And that just comes with time. You learn those, those processes over time. Now, is that not to say that some big giant deer is not going to come into a pile of corn? Well, of course they have to eat. They're creatures of habit, just like anything else. They get up in the morning and stretch and they go, I'm hungry. And they want to go eat just like anyone else. We're going to go to the fridge and grab some food. And that corn is where they know to come into, especially when there's no more acorns on the ground, right? There's no truffles. There's no muscadines and scuppernongs and, you know, all the other natural things that grow in Georgia uh, for them. Uh, persimmons, they love mm-hmm. those persimmons. Uh, so once all that stuff dries up. They love cantaloupe too. Oh yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, sort of begin to get trained on where to go. And we're going to get into a little bit more of that. Uh, let's take a moment to field. I do have one question here on Twitter. Let's go ahead and field a, a Twitter question. It's actually a great question. So I want to, I want to uh, answer this one. Hang on. Let me refresh the page. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Pick a good one. It, 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 it is a good question. Does, and it's related to this. Does baiting have any connection with the spread of chronic wasting disease? And that comes from winter wheat, 24 feet. Uh, Zowie Fender Blah One. That's a really random Twitter handle. But uh, yeah, thanks for the question, winter wheat. Let's define chronic wasting disease. Okay. CWD. Yep. All right. Chronic wasting disease is a neurological disease of deer, elk, and moose caused by infectious misfolded proteins called prions. Because of the abnormal shape, they aren't recognized and destroyed by the body when needed, so they stack up in clumps in the brain and nervous system tissue, and they kill the surrounding cells. Microscopically, this gives the brain a spongy appearance, which is why it's characterized as a transmissible spongiform... uh, I'm not even going to try to say that word. (laughs) T-S-E. Other, more familiar diseases, such as bovine spongiform... Macau disease, all right, (laughs) and scrapies which is often in domestic sheep and goats, are also TSEs. TSEs are progressive 
neurodegenerative fatal disorders. Um, symptoms. All right. Let's see. Symptoms will inc- include traumatic weight loss, poor body condition, subtle head tremors that may occur, head and ears may be droopy, and in the last stages, it is not uncommon for the animal to have excessive drooling. Yep. I've, if, you're, if you've ever <clears throat> seen a deer with CWD, it's absolutely terrifying. They they look like something out of The Walking Dead. On the later stages, they're zombies, like skin yeah. skin is rotting away. They're walking in circles. They're, I mean, it's like the end stages of Alzheimer's almost. They don't know what they're doing. They It, it looks terrible. You just go ahead and put that deer down. So uh, how does it spread? And this is related to the question that he asked. The disease is transmitted through direct contact with body fluids, blood, saliva, feces, and urine uh, infected with the prions. All right, so the reason he's asking this question is he wants to know if baiting has a connection with the spread of chronic wasting disease. Well, if the deer has chronic wasting and eats out of a pile of corn and spreads some saliva to the corn, sure, there there could possibly be some spreading of uh, chronic wasting disease with baiting. Uh, that's a possibility. Georgia, luckily, knock on wood, Georgia has some really excellent programs in place for controlling chronic waste disease. And we have one of the lowest rates of chronic waste disease of any other state in the Southeast. It's zero. We, yeah, we've we had literally have, have had almost no cases because we have such a great system yeah. for controlling that. Mm-hmm. And while I'm not saying that there's not a possibility that it could occur with, with baiting, you're right. Baiting is probably a contributing factor to chronic wasting disease in other states as well. So, yeah, I would say that baiting does probably have some minute connection, especially if you've got huge herds of deer coming into massive piles of corn and they're coming in close contact with each other, certainly. Yeah, and I'll, I'll kind of piggyback on that and say, <clears throat> you know, that would be a contributing factor of the spread of CWD um, in other states that already have it. The number one contributing factor to CWD is actually the transportation of these animals across state lines. And that's the one way that Georgia has been able to combat uh, CWD in general is that um, state law doesn't allow any transportation of any type of prion or deer or elk or any of those animals even through the state of Georgia. So for example, if you have a uh, exotic ranch, say it, for example, te- uh, Tennessee has a lot of exotics, but they also have, uh, they're the closest state that has CWD to us. And that's because they have a lot of these, uh, ranches or uh, outfitters that are shipping in these animals from say Texas or other parts of the country. And that's kind of how that spread is coming in. Those animals are already infected. They're not showing any symptoms and then they drop them off at their ranch and then that quickly spreads and then they get out. And then next thing you know, they're infecting the local population. So Georgia said, you know what? We don't want to take the chance. You can't even take your animals through the state of Georgia. You have to go around. Um, and that's probably been the, the, the saving grace of the Georgia hunting uh, whitetail population. Um, which I'm happy about because it's really a pain in the butt if you go and hunt somewhere that does have a high rate of CWD because you have to have it tested before you can even t- uh, bag it and bring it home. So you shoot the deer, you have to load the deer up, take it to the DNR office, they have to inspect that deer, and then you can take it to the processor or process it yourself. So here in Georgia, again, we're lucky we don't have to deal with that. We shoot the deer. We almost know with 100% certainty that it's CWD free. We can just take it to the processor and eat it. Although there has been no known cases of CWD impacting humans with consumption, you probably don't want to roll the dice on that. And that does allow us to segue into a few other Twitter questions if we want. Uh, We will get into a few more. Uh, Let's sort of... Talk about ethics a little bit, and um, you know, I, I think this is something worth acknowledging, not only in this podcast, but just in general. I know uh, we posted a hog hunt the other day, and a lot of people were complaining, oh, well, that's not real hunting because it's high fence hunting and everything like that. So we'll talk a little bit about hunting ethics, and mm-hmm. uh, this is something I feel pretty strongly about. I'm very much a fair chase kind of guy, all right? I, I, I love the concept of fair chase, right? So someone would argue, well, if there's a a pile of corn, is that really fair chase? Well, it is. I mean, the deer doesn't have to go into the corn, right? 
If I get out and walk around with a rifle and see a deer and shoot it, that's fair chase. If a deer is in a pen, I mean, obviously, that's not fair chase. That's high fence, right? So the difference between high fence hunting and fair chase hunting, high fence is it's literally a pen. And the deer or animals in question, right, whether it's hogs or rams or whatever they might be, uh, they're in a contained pen. Now, to be fair, a lot of times that pen is very big. <laughs> very big. We're not talking some little <laughs> tiny caged-in pen where it's just an animal in a cage and you walk up and shoot. I mean, we're talking usually at least 700 to 1,000 acres usually, depending yeah. on the size I, of the ranch. Oh, that's pretty much a standard. So, you know, it's a large area, but many consider it to be unethical because it's a lot more guaranteed. It One would say guaranteed, right? Because the animals are there. you just a matter of finding them. And you go in there and do it. Uh, one thing that I will say about high fence hunting, uh, I have done a good bit of high fence hunting, but I also do a lot of fair chase hunting as well. Our crocodile hunt that we went, or our alligator hunt we did uh, earlier in the year, that was completely fair chase. Uh, you know, not not any type of high fence thing. Like you got to find them, that sort of thing. Um, all the deer hunts that I've ever done have been fair chase deer hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. I, I enjoy the idea of fair chase. I, I think it's ethical for it to be fair chase. Um, I'm not a huge fan of high fence hunting. Most of the high fence hunts that I've done are related to filming, whether we're trying to demonstrate a product or we're trying to, you know, try out a new cartridge or something, uh, or quite frankly, we just, you know, need to have a guaranteed kill so that we can get some meat, right? It's more of like going to harvest an animal. That's what it is. Than it is to go hunting an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were catching a lot of flack on our hog hunting video. Well, we have a ram hunting video from the same place we're going to be posting. Yep. And it's great. You know, it's it's fun to go out there and, and check it out and see what it's all about and be able to pick the animal you want. But it's a very different environment. Is it is it hunting in the traditional sense? Absolutely not. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, is it still cool, you know, to go and experience it and do it? Uh, I guess that just depends on what the where your ethics lie. Now, when it comes down to, like, with us filming and everything – it's much easier to film in a high fence environment. Like we did a hunt with Sharps Rifle Company a few years ago, and that was it was like a seven or eight hundred uh, acre ranch that was fenced in, and it's just full of hogs. All right, but you don't really know where they are, but there's an abundance of hogs. Yeah, it's not like they're going to leave the property, and and there's a chance that they might not be there. So yeah, it's high fence, but it's still a pretty large area that they could be in, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so. For the purposes of filming content and carrying around tons of gear and cameras and, and trying to maneuver firearms and, and get in there and actually get a piece of content that, you know, is entertaining and informative and allows us to demonstrate uh, certain products or ammo or whatever we're trying to, you know, gather a little data on. Yeah, sometimes it's just helpful to do a high fence hunt so we can get the piece of content we need in order to to serve our viewers and and hopefully give them a little bit of information about what we're trying to show off. So, high fence hunts are a necessary evil. I in terms of my individual ethics, I consider high fence hunts to be a little unethical, but a necessary evil in certain situations. Or let's say that for instance, um, there's some exotic animal that you want to shoot, but you can't afford to go to Africa. Well, you're not just going to bring in really expensive exotics, right? And then just turn them loose yeah. <laughs> in the woods. Like, you know, you're, you're going to get that animal not. somewhere where you know where it's at. You know, that is uh, uh, for some probably a little questionable, but there's a lot of different ways you can go about it, right? So don't think that when you watch some hunting show, Right, and you see some guy swacking a, you know, two hundred and fifty inch deer with a bow, and he's like, "Oh, I've watched this deer for weeks." No, no, you didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> uh, I hate to say, but the, you know, the likelihood of running into those deer that size in the wild and in just a completely fair chase environment. I'm not saying they're yeah. not out there because they are. There's some bruisers out there, and some of them they they totally. You know, they do it legit, but there are a lot of situations where, you know, if you've ever watched a hunting show, mm-hmm. you're watching high fence hunting. And yep. That's just the bottom line. You got guys that li- have lived in that area their entire life that hunt. And you, as an outsider, came in for one weekend with a bow and were able to track down this 300-inch whitetail in two days and the guys that have been living in that land haven't hit that deer in 20 years, yeah, you didn't just happen upon him, all right? It doesn't right. work that way. 
Um, I kind of agree. I mean, high fence hunting, it does skirt the line of, you know, what's ethical and what's not. I will say it does have its place, meaning, you know, obviously if you're trying to do some filming, if you're trying to showcase a product, the the silver lining is that it doesn't go to waste. Everything that we harvest, we take back. We filled up probably three or four huge coolers full of meat. I have hams, loins. Uh, we got everything under the sun, sausages. I've got um, all kinds of ram meat. We're, we're, I've eaten a ton of it. So what does this mean to me? If I go down to South Georgia and I'm, and I'm capping, you know, wild pigs, I'm not eating them. That's you're you're eradicating an invasive species. You're not eating it. When I go in and hit a 500 pound hog, I'm eating it because I know that I can actually eat that. So it's not like you're wasting anything. You're, and you're still eradicating something that if it gets out, yeah, it could be trouble, but you're gaining something out of it. You're gaining meat, sustenance. Um, now, as far as going in for like some exotics, so if you're going after like fallow deer or seek deer or axis deer, those deer are skittish by nature. If you put them on a thousand acre high fence, you are not going to be able to pull your Polaris or side by side up, walk in and just shoot it. They're going to hear you. They're still, they're still, they're still, deer. they're, they're still, still deer. Like right. they're still going to act like deer. So there is, even though, and don't underestimate how big a thousand acres is. That's a very, and that's a thousand acres if it was flat. This is a thousand, imagine being in a thousand acre high fence with terrain. You have maybe 600, 700 foot elevation changes. You're still hiking in. There's still, it's almost, I would say it's a, a spot and stock light because you're still getting the action of a spot and stock. You're still having to hike in to a certain degree. You're still taking probably a 300, 400 yard shot at most. Um, so you're getting that experience. Is it a great, uh, starting point? Is that something you would maybe take your 14 year old son on to get him warmed up? You're not going to break him in on a Colorado elk hunt on a 14 year old carrying 40 pounds worth of gear and ammo and rifle and spotting stocks and everything. No, that's right. You're going to break him in on a, on a canned hunt that's still like a, a, a light hunt but he still gets the experience of carrying the gear that's right kind of creeping in setting up the shot getting in that final firing position breathing hitting it all all the stuff that you get to experience on a on a traditional spot and stock and then when he gets successful at that take him out and get him a tag for an elk or a bull or a moose and you're good to go well, canned hunts have their place, I believe, you know, for, for certain situations. But I would say generally, though, I do enjoy, you know, just a good old fair chase right out there in the woods type of hunt, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we've covered ethics a bit, you know, and, and I think that was a few of the questions that we were certainly getting in. It does allow us to segue, um, possibly, I'm going to piggyback on what you said about hog hunting. So think about it like this. If you go to the store and buy pork, somebody had to shoot that or, you know, euthanize that animal in order to butcher it out and, and put mm -hmm. it in the in the on the shelf so if you do high fence it's it's really you're just harvesting it yourself it's the same it's concept. a little bit more natural yeah you know? it's the same concept at least you can see where your food's coming from and you know i, I don't know it, anyone can can look at it any different way they want to but that's just the the way that i rationalize it in my head okay um i've got a question here from zero jaeger this is on twitter uh, Jaeger Danger. All right. He asks, what is the best way to field dress a deer and how to keep it cool for transport to a butcher? Now, the reason I want to field hmm. this question now is because I want to piggyback on what Matt said about taking down feral hogs. Now, this isn't necessarily related to deer, but it kind of is, right? If you're out in the, you know, field at night hunting hogs and it's 65 degrees and you shoot you know, usually on a stand, if you sneak up on a sounder of hogs and you shoot eight or ten of them, okay, so what what Matt is referring to, all right, the clock's ticking. Oh, yeah. All right, so not only is it sweltering in 60 or 65 degrees, you know, if mm. that meat gets marginally over 50 degrees, you're getting into the point where it's going to spoil really quick. 
and you'll you know think when they're it already does. hot. They're yeah. already a warm animal. So you would have to get out there and really get to cutting and working really fast. You'd have to have a ton of coolers ready to go. And then there's really no guarantee that they're even all that great to eat. Some of them real nasty and yep. gnarly looking, oh, just beat up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some of them are just, they're just not fit to eat, right? So, you know, that's just one thing to consider. Now, all right, segueing back to uh, deer, all right, how to transport it, how to dress it out. Uh, there's tons of information that you can access, tons of instructional videos and pictorial guides and things that'll show you how to properly dress a deer and everything. You certainly want to get. Uh, you know, the guts out of the deer before you try to move it if you can, everything like that. Now, to keep it cool, if you're hunting during the winter, I know it's going to sound strange, but like down at our buddy Lenton's place, you know, he'll shoot a deer and all right, during the winter months, if it doesn't even get 55 degrees during the day at all, and at night, you know, it's getting down to 28 degrees, well, you've got a natural deer cooler right there in Mother mm-hmm. Nature. I mean, I've I've known a lot of old timers, especially you know in the deep south. You know, they'll we hang do the things deer up different right out there. You know, gut the deer and hang it up uh, right there, uh, just out in the open under the barn, and just let it bleed out mm-hmm. for a day or two. And as long as the temperature is not getting above fifty degrees, uh, I, I've known of many old timers to go to cutting on that thing after just leaving it setting out for a few days. Great example is that first that very first trip we went down there last uh, last year. That's exactly what we did. Uh, I took that that smaller doe on the first day just for camp meat, and Linton strung it up. You you dressed it out. He came up, and we ate off that thing, strung up three days. And it was delicious. And we went out there every night, cut off what we needed, left it hanging. It was about, what, maybe 40 degrees outside? Yeah. Natural cooler, no flies, no bugs. It just hung right. up there. Blood was coming out of it, and now... All right, how to keep it cool for transport to the butcher. All right, so if you're going to take it to the processor, just take it to the processor. Yeah, throw it in the back it, of the truck. It's fine. <laughs> like It would have to sit out a considerable amount of time to start to spoil, but you obviously, you know, you don't want to wait around. I mean, don't put mm-hmm. the deer in the back of your truck or whatever and then go have a hot dog in town and then run some <laughs> errands and go to Walmart. Showing off your deer yeah, in the back and, of your and, truck. And leave him sitting for several hours or whatever. I mean, you know, dress the deer out, take it straight to the processor and you're not going to have an issue it it will not spoil now if it's super hot i mean i don't know why you would shoot a deer in the summer months where it's 100 degrees but obviously if it's really 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 hot or if it's just say anywhere above 50 degrees time is certainly working against you you Mm want to be as fast as possible and get that deer to the processor so and thanks for the question and also don't feel obligated to dress that deer out yourself. You don't have to do that. Um, I mean, sure, you can if there's no processors around or if you just want to learn to do it, that's fine. It is an art. Uh, and by, you know, dropping those guts, you save yourself about 30 pounds worth of weight, you know, on, on moving it around. But, you know, there's no nothing that says you have to do it yourself. And that processor is going to save, you're only going to save about $10. What was it about $10 difference? Cause we asked him, we were like, Hey, if we, if we drop the guts ourselves and dress it out and drop, just drop off the deer, what's the price difference? They said it's about 10 bucks. So yep. why go through the trouble if you don't have to? Well, there's ha- a couple of reasons for field dressing. I mean, one reason you field dress is so the deer's lighter to move around. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's one of the obvious reasons is you're dropping some weight, which makes the deer easier to transport. Um, also, sanitary reasons. You know, you don't want all the bile and guts and all the bacteria and things that's inside of a deer and inside the organs to stay inside the deer. You want to mm-hmm. remove it from said deer. Um, I'm a little torn on how I treat uh, the gutting part. Um, it depends on where I'm hunting, Right. A lot of guys, they'll gut the deer right there where the, where they killed it. I, I have a little bit a bit of an aversion to that you because, do. all right, think about it like this. All right, paint this mental picture, if you will. You went down to the local bu- buffet uh, to go have a meal, and there's a corpse laying in the buffet near the buffet. Would you would you want to eat at that buffet if there was a, a dead person's guts laying on the floor? No. Yeah. They know it's blood. They know what it is. Deer aren't dumb. Yeah. They're going to go, there's Johnny's guts on the ground. Yeah. Like So, you know, maybe if you were to haul the deer off a considerable distance of where you're trying to hunt them and then gut it, that's fine. I would never gut the deer right where you like killed Like right it. on the plot. No, no. You don't want to do that. That's I wouldn't. 
I mean, now yeah. some people, you know, they'll do it, whatever you do, you, but I personally, I'm kind of a strong believer that it, it freaks the deer out. They don't like it. I mean, would you, you, you wouldn't go to your would grocery you? store and want to buy food w- with a person's blood guts on the ground. Would you No. you'd be like, what the heck? You'd go somewhere yeah. else. Well, just think about they're the same way. They're not dumb. I mean, they know yeah. it's it's unnatural for that to be there. Well, even think about just going into the meat section of your of your grocery store, and one of those little cellophane packages busts open. And there's blood poured all over the rest of the good meat. That that blood didn't even make it inside the package, and you're looking for one that doesn't have blood on it. Yeah. So if we do that, and it doesn't even affect the meat, imagine how a deer feels when he rolls up and says. Oh boy, well, there's corn here, but it's soaked in blood. I don't know if I want to eat that. Yeah. So, but then again, not everybody is dropping deer where they stand. Maybe you know? I'm wrong. You know, maybe it's something that's a not issue, but I've always just generally decided, you know what, I'm not going to mm-hmm. dress my deer where I'm hunting. I'm going to, I want to, I want to remove the evidence of the crime, if you will. Yeah. I want to take the deer. I want to take the memory of everything that happened and it's gone here forever, throw out some fresh corn. And, and I've, I've actually, hunted in one stand in the morning, shot a doe or whatever, removed all evidence, put out some fresh corn and come back the next, the same evening and shoot another one that Mm -hmm. same evening. So that doesn't always happen because they do get educated a little bit after a while. I mean, if, if you've shot deer in one location on your property, a heck of a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the older deer, they might kind of start to get smart to it. They might kind of turn them nocturnal. They might kind of go, you know what, this is a this is a killing field. I'm going to go somewhere else. And they're not dumb, and they don't get big by being dumb. That's right. That's right. the number one thing. You don't see these big 12-pointer, you know, 200-inch deer get that big by just nomming on corn whenever you throw it out. You That's know? right. <laughs> or walking into a freaking killing zone. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so we're going to feel one more question from Twitter. Uh, this will probably be our last question from Twitter. Uh, this is from B-Tech uh, at the Nomad Wanderer. He asks, why haven't they allowed no bag limits? Hmm. Just one season. Tired of dodging herds of white-tailed deer while I'm driving to work. You know, I can speak for Georgia because we live in Georgia. I can't speak for other states, so this is kind of related to Georgia. But Georgia has an exceptionally good deer population. There's tons of deer, right? They're everywhere, right? And yeah, lots of people run them over. They get hit by vehicles, you know, in the big cities, you know, that have a little bit of woods in them. I mean, you can even have deer just showing up in, in you know, very densely populated cities and neighborhoods and things. So deer aren't shy to get in there and take advantage of whatever habitat they can. So deer are pretty hardy, you know, although, you know, the weather and predators and, and natural causes does, you know, does kill quite a few deer every year. They're pretty hardy species, and they hang on quite well. And Georgia is just a great habitat for deer to thrive. There's lots of food for them, yep. plenty of things for them to forage, plenty of habitat for them to bed up and lay in and sleep in. So, yeah, Georgia has a really healthy deer population. And the climate is good, too. It's very conducive to, like, a deer habitat. You know, it's not scorching hot. It's not, like, freezing cold, like, compared to, like, say, Montana, where it's, like, 10 foot of snow and... I agree with you. I think we have a very hardy population because of where we lie in the U.S. We do. I think the current uh, regs, if I'm not mistaken, in Georgia, is you can you can kill ten does mm-hmm. and two antler deer per year. So it's twelve deer bag limit. Yep. One over four, though. Like one. Yeah, has, one yeah. one has to be four better on one side on your buck, but you can shoot two bucks and ten does. And some would ask, well, well, gosh, that sure is a lot of deer, and it is a lot of deer. To answer your question. Uh, nomad wonder he's asking well well why not just have no bag limit there'd be a lot of people that would take extreme advantage of it you'd have people out there gunning down dozens of deer just to do it yep because there's no direct consequence like when you set a bag limit not only does it help when it comes to uh, conservation right the reason we set bag limits is because we look the scientists go through and they look at the deer population and that bag limit is set based on the amount of deer that need to be cold or can be cold, and how many hunters from the there population, are. and how many hunters there are. So, if let's just say that the state of Georgia were to wind up getting a surge in hunting permits, and say they got like fifteen thousand extra hunters across Georgia that they would usually expect seeing in a given year, then yeah, you might see the regs drop that number down to accommodate the additional hunters because. You don't want to take down too many of the deer because then you're going to, you know, make the population of that, that the deer dwindle a bit. 
so to keep the population healthy, there's a certain amount that can be culled from it. So the conservation efforts, you do have to take some deer out of the population. If you let the population just run rampant based on whatever resources are there, the resources are going to get outstripped and the overall health, the holistic health of the deer herd in Georgia will be greatly affected in a negative way because they've their their populations outstrip the resources available to them. So the the bag limits that we have are based on the science of okay, how many deer can we stand to get rid of based on the amount of hunters and still have a healthy deer population. Yeah. Now, to go back to the previous question about um field dressing a deer, that kind of correlates with bag limits because let's just say you are a a landowner and you own a thousand acre farm you can feel address your own deer and it doesn't count against your bag limit now i'm not saying that's what you need to do but in that case the only people that know that that deer is gone is you and the deer because you're right. you're field dressing it you're harvesting that meat the only reason a bag limit comes into play is when you drop it off at the processor because that processor has to mark it off as on your harvest record well it depends so here's the thing you're absolutely right some landowner who's got several thousand acres wants some camp meat or wants to, to kill a deer just to have some food for his family. There's a lot of old timers and, and a lot of folks have been around a long time and, and multifamily generations. Yeah, they'll go kill a deer and dress it out, put it in the freezer, and that's the end of it. And they're not even going to involve DNR. They're mm-hmm. not going to report it. They never have reported it. And there's that's just the, you know, you're not going to get around that particular aspect. So George actually changed the law on the regs up just a little bit a few years ago. And it used to be in order to tag a deer uh, in Georgia, you had to have a hunting license. Mm-hmm. All right. And all of that stuff. And you had to have a harvest record, but now they have it to where if you own the land and you are only hunting on your land, you don't have to have a hunting permit, a hunting license to hunt on your land. They still encourage you to print out a harvest report and report the harvest because that helps the scientists and that helps DNR kind of know how many deer are being taken from the population so that they can appropriately determine uh, future regs and stuff like that, and future conservation efforts. So it's not that they're not telling you, hey, don't kill the deer on your own property. They're sort of kindly requesting, hey, please tag the deer so we know what's being removed from the deer population. And and, so it's, it's, yeah. (laughs) And I think that's a good idea because they also take into consideration out of state hunters. I mean, Georgia does receive, because the season is so long here, um, we do receive quite a bit of out of state hunters. A lot of hunters come in from Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, which basically is all flat terrain, um, South Carolina. So we, we receive a lot because of, you know, where we're at. Um, we don't have any CWD and we have a very extended firearms hunting season. So, you know, it's up to you if you want to report that as a landowner. Um, it just helps with the bag limits in the future. All right. So I want to spend uh, probably the, the remainder of our podcast here today talking a little bit about equipment, uh, about hunting rifles and things. Um, you know, we are a gun channel here on YouTube and obviously pew, here pew. at LLP, we, we love our firearms and stuff. Uh, I would, before we get into that, I do just want to acknowledge a question. I'm not going to answer this question, but I do want to field this question uh, just to segue into something here. Uh, Scott Scott Ryman wants to know, hey, what's your favorite venison recipe? Hmm. I'm going to refer that to a Manly Meals episode in the future that Chad and I are going to make on preparing venison. So stay tuned for that. We will answer that question in video form in a Manly Meals episode. Make sure you follow our Manly Meals episodes. All right, so... Thank you, Scott, for the question. All right, we'll move on to, to equipment. So uh, Chad and I done a couple of videos here just the other day. So since we're getting into deer hunting season, things are just really getting rolling for the, for the, for the 2021 season. We decided to do a few videos. One was a top five, uh, top five guns videos uh, that we did on deer hunting rifles. Mm-hmm. So expect that on the way. Um, also, we did a good solid roundup on different rifle cartridges, and we discussed, obviously, hunting implications in there as well. So that'll be up there to help some of you who want some more information on deer hunting cartridges. So with that being said, Matt and I will spend the rest of the podcast here talking a little bit about some of our experience with different guns and stuff. Um, so I know you, you got your, you use my um, Mauser, Mauser Model 66 for yep. your first hunt. Yep. But now it. you've got I got the uh, M77 Mark II. 
uh, which I am going to absolutely slay with this season. Um, I did use the uh, the DD four uh, on the last the last hunt, which performed well. Ammo, not so much. Gun flawlessly, except for the one hiccup, which you'll probably see <laughs> in in the next upcoming video. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that I am leaning more towards uh, bolt guns. I mean, they're. I know that a lot of people now are getting into like hunting with the AR platform. It's very convenient. It's a one one gun system. You can use it for hunting. You can use it for you know shooting, like tar- like plinking. It, it does. It's nice, but there is a dramatic weight difference. And I'll tell you, when you're walking through the woods at you know four thirty in the morning and in, in pitch black. Um, you know, you don't want to be carrying something that's that heavy. And you might say, oh, it's not that heavy. Well, you know, it can be when you start weighing down with the optics and the can and the full magazine. And it's just not nothing really beats a bolt gun because with the weight. Well, Chad hunts deer with a 300 blackout pistol mm-hmm. and uh, he, he uses 110 grain barns load and it performs quite well. The triple shock. Um, so I like 300 blackout. I do have a Ruger M77 Mark II all weather chambered in 762 by 39. Um, that was a limited Davidson's deal. They only did like a hundred guns. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the the pride pieces of my collection. But I hunt with that rifle and I love it. The M77 Mark II that that uh, Matt's got, I I picked that particular gun up because I wanted to convert it uh, to an integral suppressed 65 by 55. But I wound up running into quite a bit of pushback from a lot of gunsmiths because apparently the Rugers are not that easy to rebarrel. Mm-hmm. And they're very difficult to pull the barrel on. The receiver shape is kind of odd. And they're just not very conducive to customization. So I scrapped that idea and I thought, well, I picked this thing up in Alt 6. And since he used my Mauser and loved the 30 Alt 6 so much, I decided, well, you know what? This needs to be Matt's hunting rifle. So he's now That's the custodian. It. Uh, of that rifle. Much appreciated. And uh, you've been using the 220 grain bullets in the Alt 6? Yes. So I got a 220 power shock. You know, awesome. that's that's what I'll be running this deer season. I don't, I remember we ran 220s. Uh, I think we ran Bond, Bond Strike last season. Yeah. Those were the Norma Bond Strike. Yep. Those are 100, 180 grain okay. bullets. So. Yep. We also ran some 220s at the very end of the season. We ran some 180s at the beginning of the season. Uh, we ran some 220s uh, at the end of the season. Yeah. And then this season, I'm going to start with 220s as well. Uh, and I might <clears throat> I might switch it up to 180s at the end of the... We'll just do it backwards. Oh, man. Uh, you know, we'll see. So, all right. My hunting rifle, one of the primary hunting rifles I'm going to be using this year is another M77 Mark II. Uh, this one's a blued action, but it's in an all-weather boat paddle stock. And you, uh, some of y'all that are uh, tuning in on YouTube here, uh, you may recall the 9.3 destruction video. Also, our mystery of the 9.3 video that we put up, mm-hmm. uh, where we had the 9.3 by 62. And uh, I picked that gun up very late in the season last year. I didn't have an opportunity to hunt with it. Uh, it was a Christmas gift from my wife. I've got that gun set up. I'm shooting 285 grain soft points. Ooh-wee. And I know that's heavy medicine. Some of you are thinking, "Wow, that's that's a lot of gun for a for a deer." Uh, but I'm I'm going for some hopefully some bruisers. Yep. I'm I'm, I'm going to harvest a few does for the fridge and everything. But I'm really trying to antler hunt this year and and really let the tiny deer walk. Yep. Uh, if it's unless it's a monster eight or monster ten, uh, it would have to be a big eight or 10 for me to even justify shooting it, but I'm going to let anything under a 12 walk uh, unless it is an absolute bruiser. Now that's weird. Sometimes you'll see an eight pointer that might be a, you know, 120 inch deer, even yeah. only being an eight pointer. Got so a big thick neck on them. Oh God. You know? I mean, so you also have to be able to gauge deer maturity, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at a deer and it's got a huge eight point rack and you're thinking, well, if I let that deer go and he lives till next year, he might shed his antlers and come back as a 12 or a 10 or something, right? So maybe grow bigger. But you you get to a point where you can kind of gauge how old a deer is by the way he walks, the way he looks, how thick his neck is, mm-hmm. the color in his face, how much gray he's got. Um, if you happen to be able to look close enough to be able to see his teeth, or possibly his feet, you know, you can tell a lot by the way the deer looks. You can begin to gauge how old it is. So if a deer is getting on, you know, six or seven years old or five or six years old and he's a huge eight, 
he's probably always going to be an eight. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. It's okay to just harvest that deer if you're willing to fill a buck tag. Anyway, getting on equipment, I'm going to be using 9.3 by 62 and also my Norwegian Kamalotter back here. And that gun's not just for looks. I do use it. Uh, I enjoy shooting black powder. Also, we have a hunt planned this year with the Air Force Air Guns Integral Suppressed 50 Cal Texan. Ooh. So we will be taking some deer with air rifles this year and filming it. So stay tuned for that. Uh, tons of stuff going on. I love deer hunting. And I think that it's a very important pastime and an important ritual for manhood. You know, it. you, you think about all the times that your dad or your grandpa took you hunting, the people that you're with. You know, hunting is about the camaraderie just as much as it is hunting the deer, right? You know, you spend two or three days or a week or however much time you spend doing the work at camp. You're getting things cleaned up. Mm -hmm. You're stocking the camp with food. You know, you're, you're, you're doing your deer stands and your plots and your uh, corn feeders and your, your cameras and all that stuff, all that work that you do when it pays off, when you get to squeeze the trigger and harvest that deer it's a fulfilling feeling uh, to know that your hard work helped pay off uh, to put all the wheels in motion to to make that happen. Yeah, and that's really one of the big things about deer hunting is you're if you're just going into like public land and you're walking in off of you park the car on the side of the road and you and your kid are walking in and you're using somebody else's tree stand or using a tree stand that's already established. Okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you have the opportunity to have a piece of land and maybe you don't buy it, maybe you lease it or you have friends that kind of manage their land and you're putting in work and you're going in and you're cutting lanes and you're you're planning plots and you're trying to do this with your family. So, I mean, not just boys. You, sometimes you'll have your wife help you out. They can get out there and help as well. And you're you're putting in the work. It's so much more fulfilling because you're you're not just out there hunting for sport. Like it's it, it's hard to describe if you've never been deer hunting and you're looking at this deer and you're looking at it through the optic and you're watching it and you're like, man, this thing is amazing. This is a majestic animal. And then you say, but he looks good. He's going to make good eating. And bam, hit them. They, yeah. dro they drop. That's, I mean, the, the feeling is not remorse. The feeling is like, I'm going to be able to eat this animal and provide for my family. It's, it's, it's indescribable. Like it's, it's yeah. not, it's just one of those things where I really enjoyed it because yeah. it allows me to, I guess without sounding like chauvinistic, like what you just said, it is kind of like one of those manly things where you're like, Hey, I'm able yeah. to get out there and, and do what a traditional male was supposed to do as provide for your family. You know, I, I, I think that the way that I approach it and I, we're getting towards the end of the podcast here, but I'll, I'll just reiterate this. I've said this in a few previous videos, but I'll say it again. Uh, I love animals, right? I love dogs, cats, I love animals, and I'm more comfortable around animals than I am people. I don't know what that says about me. Maybe that says I'm <laughs> maybe I'm an okay person for that reason. But I like I prefer the company of animals, and I I like watching the deer. I love observing them, mm -hmm. watching them. I love the deer. You know, I don't want to hurt the deer. Right? You want the deer to be healthy and happy and to live their lives, and it's it's fulfilling to know. When you're doing the plots and the and the feeders and everything that you're helping the the herd have food th through the winter and you're helping them survive through the winter and helping them have a better chance of of living uh, a fulfilling life, you know. But it's also as much as I love them, you know. I still I'm a carnivore. I eat meat. It's a circle right? of life. So man. it, you know, it, it's a consequence of being at the top of the food chain. So whereby, yeah, I love watching them. Even if I didn't have a rifle, I'd love to sit in a deer stand and just observe the deer. And I've done that before, right? Like when I'm scouting and stuff, you know, even before deer season, I'll just sit and observe. I love the deer, but it's also one of those things that I eat meat, you know? And so it's a sacrifice. It's something that, you know, I, I am, that animal is sacrificing its life force for me to take and to use for me to survive. So it is a circle of of life in a way, right? So think about all the deer that we're feeding that go on to live and go on to reproduce and the herd lives on. 
we're just taking a few uh, sacrifices out of the uh, herd in order for our time, I guess, mm-hmm. is the way it would look at. So I do view that it is a sacrifice um, that that the animal, you know, we, we have to receive that sacrifice and 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 receive it with with honor and respect. That's big, though. Yeah, you and that's why I do it. look at fair chase. When I think fair chase hunting, I think more of this way of getting in the woods and making things happen. I mean, high fence hunting is a, an unfortunate byproduct of needing to film and things like that, but also a byproduct of needing to shoot certain species that just aren't indigenous to this area. Mm-hmm. So in, in light of that, high fence does have its place. I prefer more of a fair chase uh, environment like what we do down there. So uh, it's going to be a great year. So I hope you guys get out and get some deer hunting in. Uh, thank you so much for listening on today's podcast. If you're watching here on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. Um, many more podcasts on the way, many more um, YouTube videos here on the way. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. And also, big thanks to all of our Twitter followers um, that came in and provided some questions for us that we could answer. Uh, hopefully, we gave you adequate answers on that. Hopefully. And we're getting back into doing podcasts. We hope you'll tune in with us every Saturday on YouTube, every Friday on all of your podcast serving platforms. So hopefully we'll be back on track a bit. Uh, Thank you so much. Many more on the way. Guys, live free. Be happy. Be careful out in the woods. More on the way. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.